Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I'm Dr. Samuel Foster, co-organizer for the Bassi Study Group for Minority History. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Centre for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. On this episode, Alexander Maxwell, Associate Professor in History at Victoria University of Wellington, talks to us about the role of Pan-Slavism as a form of minority nationalist ideology in the Habsburg Empire. Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Can you Thanks start by telling me. us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this area of history. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I started off being interested in Slovakia. Uh, I wrote my PhD thesis in my first book on Slovakia. And I imagined my Slovak research as introducing contingency into the national awakening narrative. So I was interested in, particularly at that time, in Czechoslovakism, and I imagined Slovak nationalism and Czechoslovak nationalism as being in a sort of race, and you know, eventually one side would win. But I was interested in the race. Um, so I started doing the research and I found that, well, there was some Czechoslovakism, but the really dominant theme was Pan-Slavism, that my Slovaks imagined themselves not as Slovaks or as Czechoslovaks, but as Slavs. And they saw in Russia, Poland, Bohemia, Serbia, Croatia, the entire Slavic world, that was one nation to them speaking one language. And uh, so that became a prominent theme of my Slovakia research. Um, my, um, when, when I went on the job market, I had to pursue some other questions because I found that uh, linguistic nationalism was you know, not exactly setting the world on fire in terms of the, uh, the job market. Um, partly because it, it looked like the study of linguistics to a lot of people. Uh, but now that I have a job and I've published some books, I want to return to this idea of the Slavic nation speaking the Slavic language. And that's how I got interested in this topic. And for the benefit of our listeners, could you explain Pan-Slavism as a concept, its um, historical origins, and how it emerged in the modern nationalist context during the 19th century? One of the main problems I have talking about Pan-Slavism is that this word is used to describe different things. It seems to me that in the English-speaking world, the predominant association with the word Pan-Slavism is Russian expansionism. Pan-Slavism is the idea that all Slavs should be in a single state, probably Russia, um, presumably Russia, and that it is a security threat because it's the same thing as Russian expansionism. Now, this pan-Slavism as Russian expansionism is a thing. You can find some Russian savants who are espousing these very ideas, Danielewski, Pogodin, whatever. So it's a thing. 
and our, our colleagues who do Russian intellectual history can tell us all about it. But I'm interested in the Habsburg monarchy and uh, my Habsburg Slavs are not interested in that. The Slovaks, the Czechs, the Slovenes and so forth, what they're interested in is promoting the national language. They don't wanna be Germanized. They don't wanna be Magyarized. They wanna promote their native language. And so they take steps to promote that native language. And what is that native language that they promote? It's the Slavic language. They view all Slavs as speaking the same language. They look at Russian and Polish with their different alphabets and their different literary traditions. And they say, oh, look at the dialects of the Slavic language. And I find it interesting to imagine and study and, and see how people operating with that initial assumption go about promoting linguistic nationalism. Thank you. Um, so first, looking at the Habsburg monarchy, or what would come to be known as Austro-Hungary um, from 1867 onwards, um, it's, this entity is commonly viewed, at, at least in the Anglophone West, as this increasingly labyrinthine mosaic of various political tensions, um, these sort of um, in, often again, from the Western perspective, incomprehensible cultural, overlapping cultural traditions and very obscure sort of, and again, from the linguistic perspective, rather obscure sort of uh, ethno-linguistic currents, if you like. Where did Pan-Slavism fit into this complicated dynamic and what distinguished it, it in your opinion, from other forms of um, 19th century nationalism? Well, nationalism is, a, is an interesting thing because it's, you know, all forms of nationalism are in some ways similar to each other, but yet at the same time, every form of nationalism is, is unique and different. So it's a, it's a difficult thing to theorize. It's a slippery thing to, to try and generalize about. The main feature of pan-Slavism in the Habsburg monarchy though, is that it's a form of minority nationalism, which made me think of your podcast. There's, um, there's, the, the dominant languages in each of the crown lands of the monarchy are, are non-Slavic. There's German on top, or in Hungary later on, Hungarian comes on top. There's uh, Latin is very important for much of the time, um, but there's no place really being administered in a Slavic language. So when people start promoting the Slavic language or their individual versions of Slavic in the context of the Habsburg monarchy, it's a form of linguistic revival. People are writing grammar books, people are writing dictionaries, people are trying to write um, collections of poetry, uh, which initially is collecting folk songs. Then they try to write their own poetry or their own novels or histories and are trying to create a, you know, a literary tradition. And everybody is working with their local materials. So in Bohemia, people are looking at the Bohemian tradition. In Croatia, people are looking at Croatian traditions or Dalmatian traditions and so on. And people are drawing on religious traditions, which are also different because Catholic Slavs or Orthodox Slavs are, are you know, looking at different religious traditions. But at the same time, there's the desire to bring all Slavs together. Um, partly this is a romantic idea of, you know, we're all brothers. I think it's also partly the desire to look for allies in the context of the monarchy as a whole. So, you know, in the context of an individual crown land, the Slavs feel weak and divided, uh, you know, overpowered by the German overlords or the Hungarian overlords or whatever. But they know that they have allies in other crown lands. So there's a, a sort of vague desire for 
um, for allies and for common uh, common action that um, doesn't actually go very far, but uh, persists nevertheless. <clears throat> These things um, come to a head in 1848 when there's a Pan-Slav Congress. Uh, so during the revolutionary year of 1848, there are sort of national councils spring up all over the place and uh, people are promoting the national this, promoting the national that. So the Slavs say, well, we're all Slavs. We should have a, a Slavic Congress. The Germans are having their German Congress in Frankfurt. Let's have a Slavic Congress in Prague. So everybody gathers in Prague and is all happy to see each other. And it's the, you know, the happy year of 1848 and everybody's optimistic and, uh, and so on. Um, and then when they're actually confronted with each other, they find that they don't understand each other very well. And it's hard to understand the, the dialect of the other language. There's a, there's a very amusing literature um, that tries to estimate the degree to which the Slavs in Prague were speaking German to each other. Was German the true Pan-Slav language? And uh, it's, uh, it's really, a, it's really a, a funny literature because the German sources who say, look, they're speaking German to each other, have a little bit of that, you know, in the Simpsons, ha ha, you know, they're, they're laughing at the, at the Slavs. And that makes the Slavs defensive. Um, so it's, it's kind of not clear between the, you know, the, the laughter and the jeering on the one side and the defensiveness on the other, what actually happened. But, but it is clear that after 1848, the fantasy of we all speak the same language um, takes a hit. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, people are promoting more particularist nationalisms. So it's, there's more Czech particularism or Slovene particularism or you know, whatever. Or maybe Czechoslovakism or Yugoslavism, but the, the idea of the great Slavic nation is sort of fading from view. Just as a quick um, follow-up to that, um, which uh, specific uh, modern-day um, national groups does this sort of pan-Slavism in Austria-Hungary encompass, just um, for the benefit of our, of our non-specialist audience? Well, so from the point of view of a pan-Slav, so the Pan-Slav look, looking to see, you know, who are my fellow Slavs? That would be today's Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, also known as the East Slavs. Uh, today's Poles, um, including um, Silesians or Kashubians, if you like. The um, Czechs and Slovaks, or Czech Slovaks, Moravians, or Czechoslovaks, depending on how you want to formulate that. And then the South Slavic peoples, which are normally described as... Uh, Slovenes, Croats, Bosnians, Serbs, Macedonians, and Bulgarians. Now, for my 19th century Slavs, the Bulgarians are pretty far away and uh, don't play a big role. And, um, you know, Montenegrins, say, don't uh, feature so prominently in their imaginations. They're more interested in collaboration between the Slavs of the monarchy itself. Okay. Is that? Yeah, that that, that, no, that's, thank you, yes. Um, the Pan-Slavism varies in strength depending on how firmly developed the different Slavic group has a sense of its own particularism. So the Poles have in the 19th century a recent memory of having their own state. The Polish Pan-Slavism isn't as strong as other places. Uh, the Czechs have a strong sense of, of the kingdom of Bohemia as a, a vibrant cultural center. And there's a, you know, a strong sense of Czech particularism. Uh, Slovakia and Slovenia do not have such strong memories of independent statehood. 
um, they have affiliation to their respective um, political units. So the Slovaks are very loyal to Hungary and proud to be part of the Hungarian kingdom. And the Slovenes are very interested in being Corinthian or, uh, or uh, Carniolan, say. Um, but they don't have the strong memory of statehood that the Poles do. And they don't have a strong administrative unit behind them the way the, the Czechs do. So you get more pan-Slavism in these weaker places, I think, than you do in, the, in other places. Um, and just sort of following up um, from what you describe as a fairly mixed to not very successful earlier effort um, to uh, cultivate this sense of a pan-Slavic identity. Um, following on from 1848 and sort of going on into the later parts of the 19th century, uh, to what extent do, does this idea of pan-Slavism manifest as a more as a some sort of form of commonality, especially in more practical forms of, say, political or cultural collaboration, if at all? Mm. It's a it's an interesting question, particularly in the nineteenth, uh, the last half of the nineteenth century. There's um, there's no sharp break with pan-Slavism uh, for the most part. There is a, a famous essay from a Czech who visits the Pan-Slav Congress in Moscow and is disillusioned. He writes a famous essay, Czech, not Slav, and causes a big stir. Um, so I guess there's a sharp break in that particular, um, in Borovsky's mind. But on the whole, I see Pan-Slavism as sort of slowly fading from view, and there's no, there's not really a, a sharp disillusionment. The, the efforts to promote Pan-Slavism are mostly literary because it's a literary idea. In the early 19th century, there's lots of people writing Pan-Slav grammars or Pan-Slav uh, orthographies. People are trying to reform the orthography of their variety of Slavic to make it look more like other varieties of Slavic. The, the prototypical example of that is Ludwig Guy, who is a, a Croatian journalist. He writes a very influential Croatian orthography in which he introduces basically the Czech uh, Hacheks. So the C Hacek and the S Hacek come into Croatian at this time. He actually introduces more Haceks that stick. I'm a, you know, his orthography looks even more like Czech than modern Croatian orthography. Not all of his innovations take. Uh, so there's all these concrete initiatives in the 19th century on that regard. There are also efforts to found Slavic reading rooms and uh, Slavic journals. And if you look at the, the journals of the early 19th century, you know, the, the Serbian journals are filled with stories about Croatian um, folklore or Polish folklore, or this, that, the other, because everybody's interested in the cultural events of the rest of the nation far away from our, our local situation. But as the 19th century goes on and the, the questions of nationalism become less literary and more political, and people are more interested in the voting reform law or, you know, that sort of thing. What will, be the, what will be the language used in state administration? How many schools will be founded? Then um, those are more local questions addressed at the crown land level. And so then uh, pan-Slavism ceases to be relevant. So as these other forms of nationalism become more important, then the literary pan-Slavism just sort of fades from view. Does that make sense? Certainly. Um, and also just to come back on... Um just to look at uh, coming back on Austro-Hungary then, um, uh, are there any kind of, dis are there any sort of notable distinctions in how this develops, um, just to sort of build on the last question, 
between the Austrian German portion of the Habsburg monarchy and the Hungarian portion, especially after again 1867, where Hungary, um, where the monarchy is kind of evo uh, sort of um, evolves into this partnership between Vienna and Budapest. In the Austrian half, the dominant attitude of the Habsburg monarchy is to try and be a fair arbiter between the legitimate and illegitimate claims of these hothead nationalists um, in the various uh, communities of the monarchy. I think the imperial bureaucracy sees itself as, uh, you know, as sort of the umpire between their, uh, between these sort of, uh, you know, squabbling children. And okay, so Germans have legitimate complaints, Czechs have legitimate demands, let us now decide whose demands are legitimate. Let us come up with principles and rules that are universally applicable and can be fairly applied and apply those rules uh, fairly and justly. And well, okay, so that has lots of problems and difficulties, but I think that's what the state is doing. When the Ausgleich happens, uh, when the settlement happens and the Hungarians get control over Hungary, they take a different attitude they're consciously trying to build a Hungarian state. They pass this nationalities law to try and uh, show how liberal they are. But it seems uh, to me that they don't particularly mean, uh, mean the provisions and the provisions aren't fairly, fairly implemented or implied. There's recently been some terrific work done by Augustin Beretz. And let me uh, you know, promote his work here. Um, there's a, so he's a Hungarian scholar who's written about modernization, particularly in Transylvania. And he's interested in the a sort of three-way three -way struggle between traditional Transylvanian German Saxon elites, the new Hungarian state and the Romanian speaking majority and how they contest um, which language is used in which branch of state administration and so forth. Uh, his work achieves an incredible degree of, of subtlety but the politics there um, still feels quite different from the Habsburg politics because the, the goal of the state is different. The Hungarian elites are trying to create a Hungarian state, a Magyar state, a monolingual state. And well, they vary in how much they push it. They vary in how pragmatic they are, but it, it feels quite different to me. A point I found quite interesting, actually, in um, reading through some of your more recent publications um, is this idea of, um, you, and, you've all, and you have already touched upon this, actually, when you talk about sort of these ideas of literary nationalism, is the idea of nationalism, a form of nationalism that, uh, or and minority nationalism in particular, that rejects the concept of the nation state almost, um, or the modern 19th century nation state, or the modern nation state. Um, do you feel that something, that a, that kind of idea, I mean, what do you feel is sort of the, uh, do you feel something like that could only really have evolved in the context of Habsburg monarchy, um, given the sort of, and, and also in this rather, and also in the context of the fact that these, this idea of pan-Slavism was an idea that is ultimately being cultivated as a form of, as a sort of nationalism for minorities, if you like. 
uh, one problem that my pencils have, have is that they are, you know, trying to reform the orthography and they're trying to collect poetry. And if they let the word panslavism slip, then um, local government elites will accuse them of being spies for Russia and stooges of, uh, you know, of terrorism and this sort of stuff. And they get all sorts of, of legal troubles. And they, they very commonly distinguish between um, the true panslavism or the spiritual panslavism or the literary panslavism on the one hand and the political panslavism on the other. So they say there's no political panslavs here. Well, only the literary panslavism appeals to us. I'm not entirely comfortable with this as an analytical distinction of the two panslavisms. Uh, you know, the, the political panslavism being only about statehood because there's also a politics of language and a politics of culture or a politics of, of, of uh, you know, this, this, this other half of panslavism, the non-state seeking st uh, half of panslavism also has a political dimension to it. And I'm sort of uncomfortable with that. I've been sort of struggling with the idea of high political panslavism versus low political panslavism, or I don't know, the, the terminology is, is difficult. But uh, I've often had the experience that when I present about my panslavs uh, at, a, you know, at a conference or wherever, then people in the audience get impatient with me and they say, you know, all this stuff about dictionary writing is very well, but what about the Russian expansionism? And I said, there's no Russian expansionism. It's not there. Well, but it's got to be there. And uh, so now when I present, I have to say, if you're expecting the Russian panslavism, you're going to be disappointed in my talk. And I have to sort of, you know, preempt this in this uh, passionate way. But I started to wonder why that is. Um, you know, the so 19th century Hungarians or 19th century Germans, maybe they're afraid of Russia. But, you know, the 20th century, 21st century British scholars or American scholars you know, they're not afraid that Russian expansionism is going to destroy the Habsburg monarchy. What's their deal? So I've started to think that the problem arises from the, the narrative of national awakening we have in our minds. So if you think about Hrock's theory, you have a sort of phase A scholarly interest, uh, which leads way to a phase B patriotic national, um, patriotic agitation, which eventually turns into the phase C mass national movement seeking a state. And if you have that in your mind, that the phase A, the scholarly interest and um, you know, literary endeavors are worth studying, why? Because there, it's the precursor for the nationalist agitation, which is important to study, why? Because it leads to the mass national movement and the creation of the state. Then it means that any sort of, of, national, of cultural movement or literal, uh, literary movement isn't important in its own terms. It's only important for what it may prefigure at some point in the future. And I think that's my, the big point I would like to drive home that uh, literary movements are important or worth studying in their own right. As for the question of could this only happen in the Habsburg monarchy? Well, um, I eventually wrote an article comparing this uh, um, nationalist rejecting statehood, not only in the Habsburg monarchy, but in other parts of the world too. And one of the case studies I, I talked about in that article was Wales. If you think about Welsh patriots, well, they want to promote the national language. They found organizations to promote the national culture and the national poetry. They wax rhapsodic about the national spirit and so forth, while at the same time proclaiming how proudly British they are. They can be um, annoyed with the English for this, that, the other thing, but it doesn't mean they're not proud to be British. And I was struck by that comparison. So I've, I've published actually a couple of things comparing the Welsh nationalism 
and the Slovak nationalism as similar forms of uh, what I once called a supplicant nationalism in an article published in Central Europe by Cease. And then later in Nations and Nationalism, um, more theoretical uh, article called uh, Nationalists Rejecting Statehood. So I think it's actually um, a widespread phenomena that people are promoting a culture, promoting things with a national, national aspiration, imagining those aspirations as national, associating those aspirations with a community that they think of as a national community, but without uh, seeking a state. And I wonder if the, um, this thing has, this phenomena has become obscured from view because scholars in their attempt to define nationalism are defining nationalism as the quest for statehood. And then that causes these forms of nationalism to be defined out of existence. Yes, I mean, also one of the uh, issues you may have encountered, which I certainly have, is the idea of is um, Anglophone uh, uh, research into East Europe, Eastern Europe in general tends to be uh, still somewhat Russia centric. So um, that's another <laughs> enduring issue. I certainly a frustration I often have. Um, OK, so speaking of the future, then looking towards the late 19th and really as this podcast as, as is the focus of this podcast the early 20th centuries so the terminal decades or the rather the final decades of Austro-Hungary itself uh, specifically the era of the first world war um, what sort of impact did such do you see such developments as having on Habsburg pan-Slavism or at least the uh the currents that had originally given rise to pan-Slavism, this fight, these final years of the Habsburg monarchy. I think the most interesting legacy of pan-Slavism in the 20th century, both at the time of the First World War, but also particularly in the interwar period, is the notion that the national language can have more than one written form. So my 19th century pan-Slavs, they look at Russian, they look at Polish, they look at Czech, printed in different alphabets with different orthographies, and they say dialects are the same language. And they become very comfortable with the idea that the same language may be expressed with different letters, expressed with different standard spellings. Maybe your verb endings are different from my verb endings, but it's still the same language. And that's just becomes a you know, it, it's not expressed, articu uh, articulated explicitly very often. It's just taken for granted. Everyone knows this. Look at Polish, look at Russian. Aren't they the same language? Ergo, different uh, alphabets can be the same language. Everyone knows this. And so no one talks about it because it's so taken for granted. So then Pan-Slavism sort of fades from view. Um, but then in its place, you get these new um, smaller versions of Pan-Slavism or sort of mini, mini Pan-Slavisms in Czechoslovakia and in Yugoslavia. So what happens in Czechoslovakia? You get the idea of the Czechoslovak language. So what is a Czechoslovak language? Well, it means that in this part of the Czechoslovak Republic, you have literary Czech. and that part of the Czechoslovak Republic, you have literary Slovak. You uh, write to the government using the U Kringle and the R Hacek in this part of Czechoslovakia. And that part of Czechoslovakia, you have a O with an accent circumflex and an L with an accent. And the letters are different and the standard spelling is different and the prosody is different. And there's all these things that are different about the literary standards, uh, but it's still one language in the mind of the, the Czechoslovak patriot. 
but also in the law of the Czechoslovak Republic. And that's really interesting to me. Similarly, in, in Yugoslavia, you have the much more enduring idea of Serbo-Croat as a single language. And you can write your Serbo-Croat in the Latin alphabet, and you can write the Serbo-Croat in the Cyrillic alphabet. And there are some efforts to try and um, coordinate them so that the differences between them are minimized in exactly the way that the 19th century Pan-Slavs had sought to minimize the differences between Russian and Polish and Czech and so on and so forth. And this idea also lasts until the, you know, until the collapse of Yugoslavia that, uh, you know, Serbo-Croat is one language and yes, we have different alphabets and that's all fine. Ultimately, I think this idea doesn't work. Um, I, I, my, one of my very earliest publications, I theorized this as uh, literary dialects, that something can have its own literary standard, but still be imagined as a dialect. And I compared the, you know, my Slovaks and their version of literary dialects to um, some Chinese scholars that I studied in translation. Now, there are some people who want to Romanize Chinese. They want to write uh, Chinese in the Latin alphabet and ditch the character script. Okay, so if you write Chinese in the character script, what spelling system do you use? And in different parts of China, you'd use different spelling systems. All still Chinese. The Mandarin and the Guangzhou and the Shanghai, these are merely dialects of the greater Chinese. Uh, the Chinese look at this and ultimately say, this is a bad idea. It'll lead to literary separatism. Don't do this. And they stick with characters. And when writing in, um, in Latin characters, use a single Pinyin, which is the only ex uh, acceptable way to write Chinese. They reject literary dialects. What's the result? You still have the notion of a Chinese language and the notion of a Slavic language has disappeared. And even the, the mini Pan-Slav languages, Czechoslovakism, the idea of a Czechoslovak language has disappeared. The idea of a Serbo-Croatian language has disappeared. So I think that's interesting. But the, 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 the interesting thing though for me is the unintended consequence. People are imagining we're all Yugoslavs together. Serbs and Croats are brothers. We are one people, one blood. Let us have a common language together. And sure, we can have multiple alphabets, no problem. And they really don't see it as a problem, even though it, I believe, turns out to be a problem in the end. You yourself have described Pan-Slavism as a failed nationalism. Um, and history is, well, history is really kind to ideologies that are deemed to have failed. So why do you think it is still important for us as historians to continue studying them? I always find this question a little surprising. Uh, there's a whole discipline of people studying the Roman Empire. Do people say of those classicists who study the Roman Empire, what are you studying the Roman Empire for? The Roman Empire failed. You're wasting your time. People study the Soviet Union, and that's a legitimate thing to do, even though the Soviet Union failed. I think you study these things because they're important at the time. They dominate people's thinking for, you know, for decades. If you want to understand those decades, if you become interested in those decades, you need to understand what's important at that time, even if it ultimately doesn't work out. But I think there's, um, there is a, there's a, a bit of an issue with um, what sort of history we want to study. I think political scientists and sociologists who study history are often interested in studying history because history is the thing that led to where we are today. If we want to understand the present, we need to understand where we came from and how we got here. And so they, those people acknowledge the importance of the study of history. 
but they only want to study those bits of history where the legacy still is present today. They want to understand the history that led to the present. And I think it's uh, maybe a characteristically historical attitude to say, I want to study the 1840s because the 1840s is inherently interesting in its own right. I want to understand the 1840s because I want to understand the 1840s, as opposed to, I want to understand the 1840s because it has after effects that will become important decades later. So maybe that encourages me to, to study movements that are ultimately unsuccessful. But um, I think that one of the issues we have in the study of nationalism is the idea of contingency. So if you take the Roch study that phase A leads to phase B, leads to phase C, and you have this uh, narrative that goes to one point, then there's no room for human agency. There's no room for anything to have turned out differently if you only study the success story. So if you want to understand what people are actually trying to do, you have to consider the possibility that things might have been different. You know, Czechoslovakism might have actually worked out. Yugoslavism might have worked out. Maybe the Serbian nationalism could have faded from view if certain politicians had been wiser or history had come out differently. And I think when you consider those alternate paths, you get a richer understanding. I think it's also worth pointing out that there are some particularist nationalisms that fail. Uh, there's some evidence of uh, Moravian particularism. You know, people talk about the the Czech language in German, they talk about the Böhmische Sprache, the Böhmische Mundart. Well, there's also people talking about a Mirische Sprache or a Mirische Mundart. Where does Moravianism go? Where's the Moravian language? Eh, people just decide to become Czechs and it's all fine. There's no Dalmatian language anymore. The Dalmatians are happy to be Croats, as far as I can tell. But that didn't have to happen. Who knows if certain Dalmatian politicians had been a little more forceful, if certain Croatian politicians had insulted the wrong person at the wrong time. Who knows? There might be a separate Dalmatian nationalism as well. So I think it's worthwhile to keeping contingency in mind because it avoids the teleological narrative of national awakening. And finally, where can people go to learn more about this topic? Well, I am uh, trying to write a book about Habsburg Pan-Slavism, and to be frank, it is not coming together well. I am stuck. I'm... Uh, I can't seem to figure out how to, how to start the narrative off. I have some of the intervening, the middle chapters of, you know, I have drafts of them, but that project is, is stuck. Um, so I don't know, you may have to wait a while for that. But if you're interested in um, seeing the impact of Pan-Slavism and, its, um, and the, the ways in which it has been erased from our memory of the 19th century, you might look at my paper, Effacing Pan-Slavism, uh, published in Nationalities Papers in 2018, which looks at the uh, ubiquity, the, how, how widespread these pan-Slav ideas are, and how subsequent historiography has rewritten a pan-Slav from Slovak as a Slovak nationalist rather than a, a, a Slavic nationalist. And then if you want to read uh, about nationalists who reject statehood, my paper, Nationalists Rejecting Statehood, was published in Nations and Nationalism in 2020. And I also published a uh, paper called Supplicant Nationalism in Slovakia and Wales in the journal Central Europe in 2018. Finally, please look out next year. Um, the journal Nationalism and Ethnic Politics is doing a special issue on pan-national movements. I edited that special issue. So there's a, uh, an article theorizing pan-nationalism 
And then there's my case study article, which looks at how Germany and ancient Greece served as models for pan-Slav national agitators. Alexander Maxwell, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for having me.